right. Well, good morning, and David and the worship choir and band, thank y'all so much for leading us in worship this morning and focusing our attention on the text of Scripture. You could turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 71. Psalm 71. We're coming near to the conclusion of our summer in the Psalms. Just a couple more Psalms left here, and it will be wrapped up. But as we think about the church, as we think about our time gathering and studying these Psalms, and and really just the worship gathering as a whole, it's been on the decline for quite some time now in our own nation. It was, I believe, a a year or so ago now they said, the first time in American history that we have a church attendance level that's below half, below 50%. The first time ever it hit 49% was last year in 2022. A very sad statistic to hear as our nation continues on a path of destruction away from uh, its original roots, but away from the scriptures. Uh, there have even been recent studies of the decline in church attendance, and I want to read some of these to you. The the, the greatest generation, those born around 1928 or earlier, 56% of them go to church. The Number two, the silent generation, born 1928 to 1940, 44% of them go to church. The, the boomers, 1946 to 1964, about 32% of them go to church. Uh, Generation X, those born 1965 to 1980, about 27% of them go to church. Millennials, which makes up 18%, they're born from 1981 to 1999. And then we have Generation Z, those born from 1999 to 2015, the youngest generation. Their numbers are much smaller. George Barna said that they are truly the first, Generation Z, truly the first post-Christian generation. And as Ken Ham says, it takes only one generation to lose a culture. It's on swift decline. Gen Z, for example, is twice as likely to be atheists than any other previous generation. And it's evident by even their lowest attendance. Now clearly, church attendance isn't the end-all, be-all. There are people who attend, attended church their whole life, but they didn't understand the gospel and they rejected the gospel. Church attendance is not a requirement for heaven. The requirement for heaven is perfection, and only Christ can give us perfection through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, our response and repentance and faith, and we follow gladly to his commands to gather as the church. It's vitally important. But as we think about this and losing the next generation in so many ways, I think there's multifaceted reasons for this. But what happens in the home affects the faith of children and grandchildren. Yes, we need to up our efforts in evangelism. We need to up our efforts in discipleship and family discipleship to pass the baton to the next generation. And this text today, in many ways, paints a picture of why God is trustworthy and worthy to give our whole life in following him. Because it gives an account for why David, in his old age, with maturity in faith, why he seeks God continually, and why he wants to live and be spared persecution from his enemies, to tell the next generation that God is good, that he is true, that he is beautiful. James Hamilton, one commentator, in setting up the context of this psalm, looks at some of the surrounding psalms and briefly summarizes them. And I want to show you where our psalm is today in light of the one surrounding it. He, he says that Psalm 68 seems to celebrate the triumphant procession of Yahweh from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Psalm 69 includes several statements quoted in the crucifixion narratives. Psalm 70 is a cry for God to make haste to deliver and help. And Psalm 71 has language that sounds like God will raise the dead. We'll see that today. This culminates in the prayer for the Davidic king to bring to pass the blessing of Abraham in Psalm 72. In our text today, it seems that based off a plain reading of it, that the writer is near the end of his life. In verse nine, he says, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent, clearly revealing his age. His enemies are after him to shame him, but he relies on the God of glory. Let's look to the text. We'll read through the entire passage together. Psalm 71, starting in verse one. 
In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man, for you, O Lord, are my hope. My trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me and those who watch for my my life, they consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him for there is none to deliver him. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you, You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I also will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. As you think about this sermon, in in really the main idea to encapsulate in a sentence would be this. We must continually trust in God as our refuge so that future generations will know the one true God. We must continually trust in God as our refuge so that future generations will know the one true God. So the first reason we must continually trust in God as our refuge is because, number one, he is the present protector, which leads us to the opening of this psalm in verse one to three. God is the present protector. Notice how he opens up talking about, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. I'm actually going to ask you guys, look at Psalm 71, verse 1 to 3, and I'm going to read a different psalm. But I want you to follow along in Psalm 71 as I read that different psalm, because Psalm 71 and Psalm 31 are almost identical. So I'll read Psalm 31, and you listen for the differences. Psalm 31, 1 to 4, look at Psalm 71. Here's Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, speedily rescue me. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Now, if you followed along and looked at Psalm 71 as I read that, you saw a ton of similarities. And there's a reason for that. David is hearkening back to when he wrote Psalm 31 and the circumstances surrounding that. When he was writing Psalm 31, he was fleeing a persecutor, in particular, King Saul. Saul was persecuting him and he turned to the Lord and that's how he turned to the Lord, as his refuge. And now in the context of this Psalm, he's likely being chased down by either 
Absalom or Adonijah, and, and really David's life, as we might say the anointed one, when he was anointed by Samuel and further to the end of his life, he was what? He was bookended by persecution, by suffering, by pursuit, by fleeing for his life. And in this psalm, he's directly addressing God in song, saying, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. And directly addressing the Lord in his old age, David is recalling how he is doing what he has always done. David has always turned to the Lord when persecuted. He is his present refuge still, and he knows his enemies are after him. And so he calls out to God knowing what they are desiring to do and knowing what God can do. He turns to God and him alone because of who he is, and he wants to be protected from shame. Now we see this turn up a number of times in our text, this idea of shame, so what is shame? It is this idea of being made low or brought to ruin before all people in the sight of all. And we see this pop up again in verse 12 and 13 when he says, oh God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. And then in the very end in verse 21, it says, for they have been put to shame and disappointed. So we see this progression throughout the psalm. And this, this complete progression of begging God to protect him from shame, praying for God to put his accusers to shame, and ultimately praising God because his enemies are put to shame. This whole progression throughout the entire psalm. So in directly addressing the Lord, acknowledging him as his refuge by faith, pleading to not be put to shame, he then does so on the basis of a standard. Look at the beginning of verse two. He says, in your righteousness. That's the standard of deliverance. God's perfect righteousness. God will be fair. He will be just. According to one commentator, this means that God's nature will be revealed in the judgment. In the judgment he executes in putting shame on David's enemies, his righteousness will be revealed. This quote continues, a just God would not let the wicked destroy his saints and taunt their faith. End quote. You see, God's execution of judgment will never fall into unfair or unjust balances whatsoever. God is perfectly holy and just and will be fair in his judgment because one, we know he's perfectly holy and he is all-knowing. In other words, nothing at all can be hidden from God's sight. Nothing at all could be hidden from God's sight. Earthly courts might be able to be deceived. Earthly judges might be able to be deceived. They may not get all the evidence, but God knows every bit of evidence. God knows everything. And so David knows he can trust the Lord to deliver him and rightly judge this situation. Knowing this truth, David continually cries out, incline your ear to me and save me. So in this verse, David's using an anthropomorphism, right? So he's, he's painting a word picture. He's essentially trying to say, God, will you lean over from above? Will you lean over and listen to me? Many parents have been there. When we see our maybe little two or three-year-old child get hurt and they run over with their hands up, this happened literally yesterday. I'm sitting in the dining room and all of a sudden at the breakfast table, I hear, boom, and I look over, and Alden was playing with his Legos, and he keeps pushing his leg out from the chair, and all of a sudden, there's nothing there to hold him, and his head hits the table, falls to the ground, and he's crying, and I'm like, oh, it's okay, and he's like just holding his hands up. Dad, lean down, pick me up, hold me. That's what he wants. That's the picture here. God, lean down from above. I'm suffering. I'm going through a difficult time. Be there for me. Be my refuge. Be my rock and my fortress. Lean over and rescue me. So David is asking God in his grandeur and his transcendence to be close, to be eminent. He trusts him. And verse three continues to show this imagery, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. Not just a rock of refuge when things are bad, but a rock of refuge all the time to which you may continually come He says, you have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. This beautiful poetry and theology in this passage of this rock of refuge. We saw, remember in verse one, he says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Notice he didn't say with you, God, I take refuge. In you, 
I take refuge. There's a big difference here. And it's actually vitally important to understand this. He didn't merely want to be in a rock with God in God's world. Some cave somewhere, even though he probably was in a cave, quite literally. But in that moment, he recognized that that's not even completely safe. Him, in his own efforts, trying to hide himself from his enemies, he needed God to step in and be his rock. And in him, he needed to hide himself. Safe in God is what he wanted to be. The one who's stronger than any rock. The one who, as scripture says, is an ever-present help in our time of need. The one who never sleeps nor slumbers. And as we understand this as New Testament Christians, we can always come to him. We can always draw near to him. A major theme in Hebrews, what we've been studying in Sunday school. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we can see that we can continually come to God through Christ, our great high priest. Verse 14 to 16 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We might say who's inclined his ear to us. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Knowing whom, who God is reminds us that we can continually come to him. This word continually is repeated three times in our text today, and the first time it is an acknowledgement that he is permitted to continually come, and then he talks about how because of that he's going to continually praise God and continually hope in God. So first three continues, you've given this command to save me, Now, what command is David speaking of? This is actually clearly a reference back to 2 Samuel 7, 9, God's covenant with David. And in that covenant promise, he gives a a command, and, and it's to establish his house for generations. And David's recalling that, and he's trusting in that promise. He's trusting God's gonna keep his word, and he's recalling that to mind. So God gave this command, and his command is sure and steady, which is why David says, For you are my rock and my fortress. He's safe in God. And what about you? Do you feel safe? You might look around at the world right now and think, oh, I don't feel safe because of this or that. The economy, other nations, our own nation, your neighborhood, your city, your state, your school, your workplace. You may not feel safe. And really perfect safety in our own hands is impossible in this lifetime. We could be ready and prepared for anything, but still be caught off guard by danger. Let me ask you, do you you look to God for safety? Do you look to God to be your refuge? But even, let's put it in this context and apply it this way. In the midst of your suffering, we know many who are suffering and many of us have suffered and many of us are going to suffer. How do we respond to God in our suffering? Are we like David, praising God in the midst of suffering? Do you maybe do so on the outside so your church friends see, but you get home and you're not applying this faith in your suffering? Let me encourage you, look to the goodness of God. Don't question it. Look to the character of God and his faithfulness. Trust in him no matter what's coming your way. Are you someone who might look at the bigness of your trial and say this thing is bigger than God? Because it's not. Nothing's too hard for God. God can handle whatever you're going through. I'm not saying that makes what you're going through easy, but you do know the one who's over you in the midst of your trial. And that should bring comfort, knowing that he is your refuge. Now, you might object and be here objecting today, maybe even an unbeliever, and you might say, well, that's easy for you to say you've never been through what I've been through. Well, that that could be the case, that I've not been through what you've been through specifically, but as we even read in Scripture, Christ is able to sympathize with us. Christ has suffered. And we who have suffered, God uses our suffering for our good and for for one another. Think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. He praises God for his suffering. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he's described. The Father of mercies the God of all comfort, who does what? Who comforts us in some of our affliction. No, I didn't read that right. In all of our affliction, 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So I don't have to go through the same affliction you have. I just have had to have gone through an affliction, experience the comfort of God, and be able to assure you, as surely as my God comforted me, he can comfort you through your affliction, no matter how difficult. Because our God is good and he's great. And so the text continues, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you, as one who bears the name of Christ, are suffering today, let me urge you in the Lord to suffer well by turning to him in the midst of your suffering. Christ will never fail you. Continue looking to him. God will use this affliction to draw you near to him and to prepare you for a future affliction. David's past affliction hiding from Saul in Psalm 31 we see, it prepared him for Psalm 71 to face affliction again. God doesn't waste our suffering and pain. We might even say he might reuse it and reuse it again, whether it's for our suffering or for the suffering of others. David knew he could lean on the rock of ages. He knew he could hide in the mighty fortress that is our God for protection. So we see God as our present protector, but point number two this morning, we see that the second reason that we must continually trust in God as our refuge is because he is the past rescuer. The past rescuer. Look at verse four, he says, rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. So this direct address to God for rescue is really clear here, it's a cue and a transition as David states what is happening. The wicked and unjust cruel man is after him. They're trying to get him, so he cries out to the one mightier. And it proceeds in the following verses to now look back at how God has rescued him in the past. Look at verse five. For you are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb and my praise is continually of you. So addressing God directly, he calls him his hope and his trust. Now God as his hope is not God as his wish fulfiller, not God as his genie, but God as someone in in whom he knows what his promises are and he's eager to see them fulfilled. He eagerly waits, he eagerly expects because he knows what God is going to do. He knows God is faithful, so he looks to him, not wishing, but expecting God to fulfill 2 Samuel 7, 9, to protect him, to keep his covenant with him. So as he eagerly anticipates to do as he has promised, God doesn't merely provide hope. God isn't the means to the end, hope. God himself is his hope, as well as his trust from his youth as the object of his hope and the object of his trust over the span of his life. He's looking back to God as the past rescuer. He expounds on this further by demonstrating that even unborn, he leaned upon the Lord because, well, God is the one who brought him. God is the one who sustained him in his mother's womb and brought him from that point to where he is today. Another powerful picture that we see in our text that, that God, you know, created the unborn and began in the mother's womb. That's the beginning of life right there. A powerful picture in our own text. So as we continue, the next phrase, my praise is continually of you. We look at this in our text and it's a, it's a powerful reminder. We must continually come before the Lord. He is saying that all of his life, God has cared for him. And because of that, God is the focus of his praise. The content of his praise is not his mighty men. If you go read about them in 2 Samuel, they're pretty awesome dudes. One guy went down into a pit and killed a lion on a snowy day. I mean, that's pretty awesome. By himself, went and killed a lion. Pretty mighty guy. You can go read these stories of the mighty men, and they're pretty amazing guys. You might say the special forces of Israel. But he didn't praise them. He praised one mightier than them. We see he didn't praise his own earthly kingdom and think of his own earthly kingdom. He didn't think of his lineage, his accomplishments, his heritage. The content of his praise is God himself. Is God himself. And as he continues to praise God, notice what he says in verse seven. He says, I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. Now, this word portent is not one that we often use. It essentially means wonder or sign. So David's life is a wonder or a sign to many, a portent to many. 
and God is the source of this wonder. Commentators describe this idea as the one who is portent is a solemn signal to all who are watching. Uh, Ross says, uh, one commentator, it is a positive connotation inspiring obedience and worship as a sign of God's guidance and his care for his people. It means that he has become a public example to many because of his lifelong faith through all the difficulties to a place of security. Other people may marvel at his spiritual journey, but the reason for his success is God and God alone. God has made him a wonder to many, end quote. You see, many people in scripture were described as portents. Moses was described as a portent, Isaiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel. And as another commentator notes, these instances of the term in prophetic literature are in cases where the people described as portent are in themselves indicators of what God will do in the future. So what does this mean for David to describe himself as a portent? How is David indicating what God will do in the future by being a portent? Well, Hamilton believes that David would appear to affirm that his own life is an installment in the pattern of the, listen here, of the righteous sufferer. The righteous sufferer who is persecuted before being exalted to deliver God's people. This points forward to the one in whom the pattern will be fulfilled. The king promised to raise up from David's line. And if you're a good Bible reader, and you know your Old and New Testament, you know exactly who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the coming of Christ. The one who was born of a virgin, born under the law. Jesus Christ. So David and the lives of many other portents, their lives proclaim the faithfulness of God. And you see the response in verse 8 very clearly. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Some translations uh, even use the word, instead of glory, use the word beauty here. But his mouth, notice, isn't filled with the grumbling or complaining of being pursued by his enemies. It's filled with praise to God and the glorious truths of the gospel. And it's all the day. This word glory in context is a summary for all that God has done to him. It's a beautiful thing. He's praising God's glory. And what is God's glory in this context is clearly just what God has done. So because beauty or glory could work, it really just shows he's trying to beautify the works of God. And that's how our suffering should be. Our suffering should be an opportunity to beautify the work of God in us and the work of God, period. Truly one of the most beautiful things was in the past few weeks and going to visit Brother Huey Moke in the hospital and seeing in the midst of even his great suffering, him praising God, him sharing the gospel with people, him having a hard time breathing and still speaking and and sharing the love of Christ with people. You know, they say, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We all learn from watching Brother Huey's life, how much he treasured the Lord. His mouth was filled with the praises of God, with the beauty of the work of God, that he saw it important when the focus was on him to help him, he put it off himself onto the glory of God for the sake of others, which was a beautiful picture of finishing well. So as we think about this, this passage, and we hope that as we continually come to God and we reflect on his glory all the day, that our affections will be stirred for Christ and our bond with him and one another will be even closer. And so on that basis, because he has been faithful, he looks to God, he pleads to God in verse nine, he says, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him for there's none to deliver him. And he says, oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. Now we see this specific request not to be cast off because they've spoken, the enemies. They believe God has forsaken them. He's maybe even heard this or this has been at least passed to him somehow, this message that they know that he knows that they're after him and saying these things. So in the mind of the pursuers, they think maybe God is no longer blessing David. So we're gonna, in a very worldly way, take the power for ourselves, take the, the throne for ourselves. So as we think about this, this is the mighty warrior David that we know in scripture. They're wanting to pursue and take out. The one who tended to sheep and protected sheep. The one whose strength is spent. He protected sheep from lions and bears and took them out. The one who slayed Goliath. He in his old age 
his strength is spent. The scriptures say that the, the glory of a young man is his strength and the, and the splendor of an old man is his gray hair. And as we, and as we, as we think about that, the, the, the gray hair, is, as Proverbs talks about, it's a sign of wisdom. And, and, and David's strength is, is not like it used to be. So in his old age and his strength being spent, he can't fight these battles anymore and in a sense he feels forsaken. This reminds me of a story when I was a volunteer at a small church in Hearst, Texas, and during my time there, one of the lead pastors, uh, he, he, um, his mom went missing, she had Alzheimer's, and she got in a vehicle and went driving, and there was a silver alert in DFW to find her. They couldn't find her. It was about mid-February, and it was really cold in, in the night. Well, she ends up tragically passing away. They find her, her car was stuck in a field, and she got stuck in the mud, and she, she died. She froze to death. A very tragic death. And that, the next night when this was discovered, we had a memorial for her life at the church and the pastor's just weeping. We're all seeking to comfort him during this time. And, and as he was reflecting on her life and grieving, he just said, I just wish I was with her. I wish I was with her. She was, and he says this, she, he kept saying this, she was all alone. She was all alone when she died. And she was, she was a God-fearing woman. And, and to the eyes of the world, the, to, the, to the news cycle, when they see that, they're like, oh, she died all alone. To the world, she appeared by herself. But at the memorial service, a friend of the pastor spoke up and interrupted the pastor saying, pastor, brother, be encouraged because God does not leave or forsake his people. He was with her to the end. And to that, the pastor with tears just weeping said, Amen. He was reminded of the truth that while in, in a sense of a worldly sense, when we look at these situations, we see tragedy, we might think, oh, God has forsaken them. They're alone. They're by themselves. But the truth is, for those who are in Christ, we are never alone. We have been promised. It says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Well, he's also made a promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter if you're physically alone on this earth, if you are in Christ, he is with you. And so while his enemies might say, God has forsaken him, he's alone. David cries out for God to be close, that God would make haste to help him because God knows he's been rescued in the past. David knows what God has done. And so as we look at this, he, he goes on to this imprecatory prayer, this prayer of judgment on his enemies. He says, may my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. So the shame they want on him, he prays that God will be the righteous judge and put it rightly on them for going after the Lord's anointed for the, for the one who is on the throne, King David. So David's imprecatory prayer following his plea to make haste is said in complete confidence in God. We've already seen the first two reasons why he's confident, that God is the present protector, that he's the past rescuer, but the third reason we must continually trust in God as our refuge is because he is the future sustainer. Past, present, and future, God is over all things. And as the future sustainer, we see in verse 14, he, notice the verb change, I will hope continually. He's looking ahead and he does this multiple times. If you look through the passage and just take your pen right now and underline every instance of I will, I will, I will, you'll see how he's looking forward. In his present situation, looking back at the God's past faithfulness, he can move forward to the future, trusting the Lord. Verse 14, but I will hope continually and I will praise you yet more and more. Verse 14 shows the nature of his confidence that God will answer the prayers of verse 12 and 13 because he hopes continually and he's filled with joy. Joy encapsulates his praise. Yet more and more, and David's prayers are based on God's character and promises, so that's who God is and what he has done. And we see this jubilation multiply as he continues to describe it in verse 15 to 17. Look at the text. It multiplies. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation, all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. So if he's got a list, it he, well one he, he he can't make a list long enough, and he's gonna he's gonna go through this list that's so long he can't find the end of it, and he's gonna tell of God's righteous acts all the day. He's gonna tell of God's deeds all the day. I remember one time in my life when I was a very young believer, 
And I went through a, a pretty serious trial for the first time. One of my really close friends, I, I was honest with him about my doubts. I said, I said man, I, don't, I just don't know if God's really real. I just don't feel him in my life right now. And he said, okay. Well, he kind of played with me a little bit, a little devil's advocate, but it was a really helpful tool he did. He said, well, if God was real, write down every place in your life where God was faithful. He said, just start making a list. Number the things that God has done. And I started listing all these things about being raised in a, in a, a God-fearing home and a, and a great church and, and all these different things and that he saved me. And I started going through all these things and I began weeping and tears coming down my face thinking, God's not forsaken me. I just can't live by my feelings. And it was kind of that time in my life to learn to not live by my feelings, but by my faith in Christ and what he has done. And as I tell of God's righteous acts, and I, and I try to number them, I know I can't number them all, but I can try. And that's what David's seeking to do here. When, we, when, we, when he looks at his righteousness, God's righteousness r- refers to his, in his acts is the cause. They are righteous because God is righteous. It comes from him. He does them so they are good acts. Then salvation has to do with the effects of God's righteousness. So cause, effect, righteousness, salvation. We see that very similar picture here in what God is doing. And as Ross summarizes, his saving acts are righteous because he delivers his people, notice how, by destroying the wicked. As uh, one author put it, it's the title of his book, but it's the main idea of his book, it's God's glory in salvation through judgment. That's a way you can even summarize the entire Bible. God's glory in salvation, but through judgment. We see that clearly in so many narratives of scripture, one of the most obvious being Noah's Ark. God is glorified through Noah's righteous obedience to him. And we see that he saves those eight people on the ark. And the rest of the world is judged in a, in a deluge of water. And we see here in that judgment rain down that God gets the glory. God gets the glory in salvation and in judgment. It's all about God's glory in salvation through judgment. So in this passage... David continues to extol his righteous acts and their multiplicity of of effects and salvation. You can't even number them. The all-knowing God knows the breadth of his acts of deliverance, which reminds me of this beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter three. In Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, is a way we can sort of try to encapsulate the wonder and the beauty of God's righteous acts and salvation. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. Think about that. But we can't number them from our psalm today, but he's like, that you may have strength to, to try to comprehend. To comprehend what? With all the saints together, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So we were to know something that surpasses knowing. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. This passage in a major way is is, is a picture of what David's trying to say in Psalm 71. It is clear that the innumerable acts of God are a beautiful mosaic of love for his people. It is a true invitation to approach him as our Lord and Savior. And if you're an unbeliever in this room, let this be an invitation to you to come to him. Because David says in verse 16 of our psalm, with the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. David says, it is what God has done which will bring him to his destination, not what he's done. And knowing this reality, giving glory to the one it's due, David will make an effort to remind uh, people of God's righteousness because it is his alone. It wasn't David's righteousness that got him there. It was God's. 
So God alone deserving the credit, the glory, David couldn't help but recount this with great praise. And now he looks to the future. He does so with the past in mind. Look at verse 17. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even now in old age, even too old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me. For how long though? Notice what he says. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. So his confidence from his youth grew over a lifetime of being a disciple or a learner of Christ. He was taught in the faith. He continually went to the Lord as he reflects. He says, I still, I've, I've done this, I still do it. I still proclaim your wondrous deeds as if to say, Lord, I've not forsaken your teaching. I have stayed true to you and your word and I still tell others all about what you've done. Now you might read verse 17 and and then with and then maybe have an immediate objection, like, oh, wait a second. How could he say he was a, a good disciple or he continually did this? Didn't he neglect to lead his kingdom and go to war when he should have? And, and then didn't he lust after Bathsheba and, and take her to his palace and sleep with her and get her pregnant? And then, and then he tried to set it up where, it, it, where Uriah could appear to get her pregnant, but when he wouldn't sleep with his own wife, well, then what did David do? Well, David, didn't he have him killed? How could this man be someone taught of God? How can this man be described as a man after God's own heart? Well, David, his praise of God here is truly a testament to all of us who are followers of Christ. We still sin. We still sin. We stumble in many ways, according to James chapter three. And yet when we respond to our sin as Christians with confession and repentance, we are showing that we are teachable. When Nathan the prophet confronted David, David repented. How do we respond when confronted with our sin? Are we repentant? Well, David being teachable, responded rightly and could extol the wonders of the gospel still. God was not done with him yet. And we we can thank God for his mercy, for his grace, and for forgiveness. God is good. And David knew that from a lifelong experience of proclaiming God's deeds from his youth. And that's why he begs God in his old age not to forsake him. In other words, I want another chance to pass on the faith. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. So a word of application, maybe to some of our empty nesters or senior adults, just because your kids are grown and they're out of the house and maybe because you have grandkids or great grandkids, your ministry's not done. Your ministry's not done. Your ministry could be as simple as praising God and proclaiming how good he has been to you. That simple. I, one thing I love about uh, Brother Gary Richardson is he, you go up to him and say, how are you doing? He's like, well, uh, I, I ain't complaining. It ain't going to do any good. You know, just <laughs> and it, every time it's, it's like that. And uh, it, it makes me chuckle, but it's, it's true. And he's always praising the Lord. What a good example as a, as a senior adult. So today and yesterday, Maybe as a senior adult or empty nester, how is he your everlasting hope for the future? What fills your speech? Are you evidencing you are taught of God? Are you driven by the latest news or how you feel? Maybe even in your loneliness in that empty nesting feel, or how are you responding? I can tell you that there are many young people who look to you, maybe even when you're not looking, or they're looking for someone to look to, and they need someone to pour into their life. So my encouragement to you is you're not done proclaiming the wondrous deeds of what God has done. You're not done running the race. We love you, we cherish you, and no matter what the culture might say or how you might feel, you have such great use and potential for effectiveness for God's kingdom. So proclaim God's deeds until he comes or until you go to him. Proclaim the goodness of God for the rest of your days. Be an example to us who follow behind you as you follow Christ. So as David sees God as his future sustainer because of the repeated theme of righteousness, we see here in verse 19, now he seeks to describe the righteousness of God. Look at the text. Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the high heavens. You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? Now notice, he doesn't say they just reach to the heavens. They reach the high heavens. He's trying to say as far as you can go, essentially. And it's a powerful figure of speech or metaphor just to essentially say that there's no limit to the righteousness of God. You can't measure this. It reminds me of Isaiah 55 where he says that God's thoughts and his ways 
are as high as the heavens are from the earth in, compar- in comparison to our thoughts and ways. It's a powerful picture. We in modern times who are so advanced really could continue this metaphor. The James Webb Telescope, how far can that see? Well, guess what? God's righteousness is way farther than that thing can see. His righteousness exceeds that. God has done great things, and David recognizes that God stands alone and asks the rhetorical questions. Oh God, who is like you? And we know the answer to that. No one. No one. No one is like God whatsoever. What makes God so unique? Well, this next verse actually helps paint that picture. Look, look at verse 20. It's a powerful and prophetic verse considering how God is unique. Verse 20, you have made me, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. Notice how this text begins. It totally flies in the face of many wrong conceptions about God. I mean, look closely. Who is the one who made David see many troubles and calamities? It wasn't his enemies. He said, you, you, God, made me see many troubles and calamities. It wasn't Satan or his enemies or himself. It was God. God in his sovereignty allowed various trials to come his way. But he didn't just bring troubles and calamities. He brings revival of life. The same God who brought calamities, the same God who from the depths of the earth will bring him up again. This is talking about bodily resurrection. It's figurative language for sure, but it's important that he's conveying it. Because it can't happen without divine intervention. You, God, will bring me up again. No one else. Only God has the power over life and death. As it says in Revelation chapter one, that Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. Why? He owns it. He beat it. Defeated it. He's the only one who could do the impossible. So as, as we think about that power, that power to raise the dead, that, that's what makes God so unique. Muhammad didn't rise from the grave. Buddha didn't rise from the grave. No one else rose from the grave, but Jesus did. And Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers who will be resurrected from the dead as well, according to Colossians chapter one. We will join him. Like David is saying, you will bring me up again. He will bring us up again. So in verse 21, when he says, you will increase my greatness and comfort me again, David is calling on the Lord to keep his promise. In 2 Samuel 7, 9, he says, I will, in that verse in 2 Samuel 7, 9, says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. You initially read this, you're like, well, why is he talking about his own greatness? He's been extolling God so much. Does it, if you don't know the context, it might seem a bit prideful, but no, it's not at all. Because God promised to make David great. So he's actually holding God to his promise in the sense of saying, God, you said this will take place and I know you will do it. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. And you see this by extension in Genesis 12 too. In Genesis 12 too, it says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you, listen here, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So as David looks forward to God's sustaining power for his present problem, he ends this Psalm with how he will respond with praise. Look at verse 22 to 24. He says, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness. Oh my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, which you purchased, you bought it. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help. Notice how often, how long? All the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. In verse 22, we see clearly David lays out how he will act. It is a clear reference forward to what hasn't happened yet, but what he fully expects to take place based off of God's promises. He references the future five times in these four verses. So much so, even when he says, for they have been put to shame and disappointed, he, they probably hadn't been put to shame yet, but, no, but knowing that God keeps his promises, it's like as if they are already. Praise and the tongue or lips and shouts are mentioned eight or nine times in these last few verses. I think something can be seriously taken from this for, for the believer. What should come from our mouth? It shouldn't be complaint. It should be Praise. Each of us need to hear this. And so how, how, do we, how do we think about this? Well, in application, I want to 
walk through a few points here of application. The first point of application is that God is truly great. That might seem simple, but often when we look at our trials or we look at the struggles we might be facing, we might sit here and say we think God is great and then act as if all those things are greater than him. That we're more afraid of those trials or that suffering or, or the bills we can't pay or whatever it might be, we might be more afraid of those things. So what are we saying in our actions that that's bigger than God? It's not. God is bigger than all things. God truly is great. He is grand. He is wonderful. He is mighty. He has done great things, and he will do great things. And sometimes when we act like he is so small, it, it really takes away from an opportunity for us to truly grow and to know the greatness of God in the midst of our struggles and suffering. Number two, we have a myriad of reasons to praise him. Endless reasons to praise God. The manner we praise him matters. We sing, we use our lips, we speak, we say something. We don't remain silent. We proclaim by all those actions. As one, one famous person said once, praise is the pulsation of the soul. We are often praising things, right? Oh, that was a great lunch. Oh, that, that, that was a, a, a great show, or that was a great movie, or that was a great sporting event. We're always praising something. Praise is the, the pulsation of our soul. We're naturally doing that. But are you praising God? Praise is the greatest thing we could do with our lips. Number three, we must view present trials through future redemption. We must view present trials through future redemption. Even if we suffer greatly, we know that we win in the end. We know that we've won. So God is good and faithful and eternity is our hope. We're not putting all of our hope and stake in this life. If we do, we're the most to be pitied. Because we shouldn't lay our treasures up where moth and rust destroy, but in heaven where moth and rust can't touch. Christ should be our treasure. Number four, the enemies of God will be put to shame. Scripture repeats a number of times that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're not a child of God, then you are an enemy of God. And news alert, not everyone in the world is a child of God. Now, is everyone made in his image? Yes. But the only way you can become a child of God is through receiving the gospel. John 1.12 says, to those who received him, who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Everyone's made in God's image and is valuable, but they need to hear the gospel so they might no longer be a, a child of disobedience, according to Ephesians 2, a son of wrath, but they might become a child of God by receiving the gospel. Every single one of us is born in sin, but the good news is, especially for you, if an unbeliever in here today, the good news is you can be born again and no longer be a slave to sin and have to bear sin's penalty when you die. You can be made new and become a new creation. God makes us new creatures through his death and resurrection. And as we saw, David is a mature believer reflecting on his life and God's faithfulness regarding his promises. David still didn't see the end goal of God's plans and promises regarding his kingdom, which brings me to another point, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The entirety of the Old Testament is pointing forward to the coming of Christ. From the moment the Lord punished mankind at the fall until Christ was born in Bethlehem, the promise were, promises we see in the Old Testament were multitudinous. As Stephen Dempster says of the Old Testament, the many stories together constitute a single story. And this story is about the reclamation of a lost human dominion over the world through a Davidic dynasty. In short, it is about the coming kingdom of God and it is unfinished. That's how the Old Testament ends. The kingdom of God's coming, but it's not finished yet. And then Jesus comes on the scene. As we see in Mark's gospel, Mark 1.15, Jesus proclaims at the beginning of his ministry, the time is fulfilled. It's fulfilled. It's come. He says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. I can reach out to it. Repent and believe in the gospel. This fulfillment he's talking about is a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7.9 of Psalm 71 and 72, it's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand during Christ's ministry because his ministry announced or inaugurated the kingdom. So it was the time to repent and believe in the gospel. As Paul talked about this effect of the kingdom and the time being fulfilled in Galatians chapter four, listen to what he says here. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He wants to make us his own children. It truly was about making us part of his family. I think that this is not only a strong point in Psalm 71, belonging to God, but a strong theme in scripture. This idea of being in Christ. And so for this last point of application, as adopted sons redeemed by God, we, are, we, aren't, we have not merely joined God's team. We haven't put the jersey on to say, hey God, you're over there, I'm over here from far away, you know, you're in heaven, I'll, I'll see you one day. No. We're in the Lord. David, open up in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. So with David and with the apostles who often wrote of being in Christ, we can see it illustrated powerfully in this psalm, but also we have a relationship with God where we mutually abide in one another by means of his Holy Spirit. You see, being in Christ means I have fully identified as being a child of God and I identify with the death and resurrection of Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, you're not merely with God, but you're in him. As Jesus said to his disciples and commanded them, meditate on this reality in John 15, four and five. Abide in me, that's a command Jesus gives. Abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Listen to this, for apart from me you can do nothing. It's a double negative. It's a double negative there in in the original languages. He's saying it's absolutely impossible for you to bear any fruit apart from Christ. Christ alone has to be sufficient for your salvation and for your sanctification and abiding in him. We must abide in him. Notice how the text continues in John 15. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me, And here's how he abides in us. You ready for this? You wanna know how God abides in you? Verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If my words abide in you. Jesus continues by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then Jesus tells us why he said all this. And I love it when the the scriptures are this clear, they just tell us why. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Which brings to mind James 1, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. We can suffer well like David did because we abide in the Lord. David abided in the Lord as his rock, as his refuge and fortress. The word of God abided in David because it came out of him. Psalm 31 came out in Psalm 71. The words of God abided in him. It came out in his suffering. He knew he didn't need a new way to come to God, but the, we might say the ancient way of coming to God, the same way. It wasn't broken. It didn't need fixing. He went right to the word and prayer, approaching God humbly. For us as Christians, we can only be secure in this life and in eternity when Christ is our rock. Life is hard, but what are you hiding in? The rock and refuge that is God or some makeshift shack that's bound to be destroyed? So recalling the main idea of this message, we must continually trust in God as our refuge so that future generations will know the one true God. And what you need to know about the one true God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is he's the present protector in the midst of our troubles. He's the past rescuer who has countless times saved so many from eternal hell and from disaster on earth and the future sustainer who will revive you from bodily death and make you new in his new creation. So if you're within the sound of my voice, have you trusted Christ? Will that eternal life be something for you, a gift that you've received that has transformed you. If you haven't trusted Christ, today is the day of salvation, that you might begin praising God all the day, that you might beautify his works and what he's done 
And you can't make yourself better. You can't clean yourself up. You can't be good enough for God. No one's good enough for God. I'm not good enough for God. You're not good enough for God. No one's good enough for God on their own merits. It's the merit of Christ. The work of Christ is the only thing that can save you. So if you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, please look to Christ's work. When he was on the cross, he said, it is finished, or it is accomplished. He completed the work God sent him to do and was saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time to reflect upon your word and pray, God, that you would help us to see your glory clearly from this psalm. That we might respond rightly to your word and seek to beautify your works. That we take refuge in you, hide ourselves in you, and recognize your goodness. This moment, as we take a moment to respond, there are a number of ways you might respond. If you are not in Christ, you could turn You could come forward and and see me. I'll be down here to greet you, to show you how you can trust in Christ, but also you could turn to your neighbor. There are many God-honoring believers in this room who know Christ and love him and would seek to be glad to tell you how you can have a personal relationship with Christ. But also, if you have any specific prayer need and would would like prayer for anything that's happening in your life, we'd be happy to meet you down front if you wanted to come forward to to be received for prayer. And lastly, if you're, you're desiring to join Woodlawn, and become a member of this faith family, we we would invite you as well to come down. You might make that known, and we could begin the process of membership and getting to know you. And And I pray that as we seek to respond, we would see that we can come to God exactly as we are. In spite of what we are, we are welcome to God because he made a way for us to come to him. Lord, let our response be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.